Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Modes of Mouth podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. We've partnered with the Brain Shimmer Charity, helping to raise awareness and help find a cure. Thanks to our partnership, we've been able to create a short series of special podcasts uncovering those within the motorsport community who have been affected by those devastating diagnoses. You can hear those stories and more, including the Williams F1 team's planning director, Richard jones right now on your chosen podcast player the charity work all year round to help develop research and raise awareness and if you're looking to challenge yourself this new year why not sign up to the brain tumor charity's brain power challenge simply choose a challenge that will boost your brain health from meditation to 10k runs to mega sudoku and set your challenge to either silver gold or platinum difficulty level every penny you raise will be spent on the charity's medical research 250 pounds covers the cost of one day of world-class medical research into kinder and better treatments for brain tumors which really does make a difference follow the brain tumor charity on social media to learn more and to sign up boost your brain today to boost other brains tomorrow because a cure can't wait this podcast is brought to you by f1 experiences the official experience hospitality and travel program of formula one f1 experiences is the closest you can get to the pinnacle of motorsport and let's face it any chance to get close to formula one this year we're all over it enjoy the very best race tickets and track hospitality first class hotels and unprecedented access you simply cannot get anywhere else for more information on how you can book your f1 experience visit f1experiences.com where you can also save five percent on your very own f1 experiences package by using the code motormouth when checking out online so what are you waiting for experience the 2022 f1 season firsthand with exclusive access courtesy of f1 experiences get booking today at f1experiences.com
Hello, my name's Tim Sylvie, and today we're joined by a woman who currently resides in Atlanta, USA. And Harry Benjamin, did you know that Atlanta has the busiest airport in the world? Hartsfield Jackson Atlanta International has held that illustrious title for almost 20 years. And in further Atlanta-based news, do you know why the city has a phoenix as its symbol? Oh, not a clue. No, no. I can't even guess. Go on, hazard a guess. Well, um, all that comes to mind is it isn't there like a lost isn't there a lost city called like Atlantis? So that's oh, Atlantis, that, isn't it? It's Atlantis. Is it something to do with? I, I like I like where your brain something is. Something to do with there, that or not? No, nothing to do with. Oh, okay, it. so that's Ad- all I got. Atlanta was destroyed in a war in 1864 by someone called General Sherman, who burnt the city to the ground, and only 400 buildings survived. It was reborn. It's arisen from the ashes like a phoenix. Oh, delightful. Yeah. Isn't that lovely? I know. <laughs> and another interesting fact for you, not about um, Atlanta, but about another place where our guest is from. Um, she was born in Guildford or spent her youth in Guildford, we'll get clarity, which is where my misspent youth was fluttered away in a sea of two litre bottles of cider, Benson and Hedges cigarettes, curtain haircuts, Ooh. bomber jackets and baggy jeans. Um, so and I, I spent two weeks in sunny Guildford at the Guildford School of Acting once in a summer many, <laughs> oh, many years ago. So, so that's my claim. <laughs> <laughs> How are you anyway? How's tricks? Yeah, all good. Powering along, ready for a brand new season of uh, the Motormouth podcast. We've got amazing guests lined up and uh, really kicking off uh, with a bang, of course. We've got some big races. It's kind of winter. It's the off-season, but there's still some pretty epic races going on, which uh, we'll dive into, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, with that in mind, shall I introduce today's guest? Oh, I think so. So today we're joined by Catherine Legg, a British woman living in the United States of America who's been racing since just seven years old. She's had success in Formula Ford, Formula Renault, Formula 3, Formula Atlantic, DTM, IndyCar, IMSA, and we've even seen her in Formula E. We're here to learn more about her life, career, opinions, and thoughts. Catherine Legg, welcome to the Motormouth podcast. Oh, hello, chaps. How are you both? I think better Very than Very well, yes. <laughs> Slightly better than you, Catherine. You're not feeling too well, are you, at the moment? Thank you for... Uh, for- for coming on to the show either way and soldiering on. Well, first of all, how are you? I suppose, are you still in, are you in Atlanta at the moment? Where are you joining us from? I am in Atlanta. And you know what? I had no idea that that's uh, where the Phoenix came from. So you've educated me today. You learned something new, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we like to do on this podcast, educate and inform. Uh, What we also like to do (laughs) with all of our guests is uh, to go right back to the beginning uh, and how it all started, sort of casting your mind back to your younger years. When did racing first come on to your radar? What was it that made you go, right, okay, I want to be a racing driver. I love this world of motorsport. So it was actually nine years old, oh. um, not seven. Yeah, I don't. You read that on the on the Google somewhere, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, I, did. but no, <laughs> I um, I actually was on a family holiday in Spain, and my dad and my uncle had a go on. You know, the fun go karts, the kind of the ones that are slow that you yeah. just kind of do for fun. And I really, really badly wanted to have a go. And um, I couldn't because I wasn't tall enough and they wouldn't let me. But we came back to England and my dad saw an advert in the local paper for our local uh, go-kart track, which was at Camberley on the airfield there. Um, And so he went along and he took me with him. And uh, we watched for a while and we got talking to a few people. And my dad actually was the first one to buy 
a cart, but I nagged him so much <laughs> over the coming weeks that um, he eventually gave in and, and got me one too. And so from the age of nine until 19, we spent every weekend literally come rain or shine. I mean, I remember times my dad had an old pickup truck. We had a, a board of plywood on the front of this pickup truck that we would literally scrape snow off the track so that we could go and drive the go-kart. So, um, yeah, come rain or shine, didn't matter if it was Christmas or, or whatever, we would, uh, we would be around the country karting. And then uh, I never thought that it would turn into a career because we never had family money. Uh, I never dreamt that it was even possible. Obviously, being female, there were no girls racing, especially in Europe at the time. Um, so I just kind of kept trying um, and didn't give up and, and nagged enough people. And it was kind of tenacity, really, that got me there more than anything else. Did you um, did you immediately have an affinity with racing did you did you were you good from the start or or did it gradually build up and you got to a point where you and your 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 family thought actually there's something in this for us um I loved it from the start uh, and I think I was pretty good I mean I was winning go-kart races in the cadet class you know the kiddie class so I was decent I don't think I've I've ever been outstanding <laughs> by any way shape or form but I was good enough, let's say, and I loved it. And so if you pour your heart and soul into it and give it everything you've got, you you know, I think of drivers as kind of two sorts of drivers. You've got like the learned drivers and you've got the ones with just like an abundance of natural talent. And then you've got ones with a bit of both, you know? And um, so I I just lived racing I love the adrenaline I love the competition I love the sense of purpose that it gave me I I love everything about it so I just kind of poured my heart and soul into it and I wasn't going to give up and uh and I I guess I'm still doing that today right I mean I've been doing it a long time and as you said I've raced very very many different kind of forms of racing um and I think that's just because I keep on keeping on and keep keep pushing. Well, if there's one thing I think I've learned over the course of, I think we've done about 100 plus 100 episodes of, of this podcast, is that one thing racing drivers need is determination to keep plowing <laughs> on through because there's so many things that come against, you know, lack of funds, lack of opportunity. But I suppose when you were first starting and, and you made the move from carts to, to cars and you started going in British Formula Ford and, and going up sort of the British Formula Renault, Formula 3, did you have a set plan did you know that okay i'm going to do this and then i'm going to do this and then i'm going to do this once you were on the ladder did you think right okay i'm going to go up these and just just see how high i can get because now obviously the predominant amount of your time is spent over in the states and racing sports cars so was that even in the mind then no not at all my sole focus um was formula one back in those days and in my mind, I had a plan, you know, I was going to do Formula Ford, then I was going to do Formula Renault, Formula 3, Formula 3000 at that time. That's how old I am. I'm dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was going to be a Formula 1 driver, right? Um, however, <laughs> we didn't have the money um, even to run Formula Ford. You know, we had to run it ourselves and our own team. Um, and back then I did show kind of glimpses of being really good. So, um, you know, I got pole in Formula Renault um, against people like Lewis, 
you know, he was in the race too. It's not too shabby. It's not too shabby. That's my one claim to fame. (laughs) No, uh, (laughs) I am. I I mean, there was an obvious ladder back then. There wasn't all the uh, classes that there are today. And and if you were going to make it in racing, you did it in England, right? You did it in England. You did it in Europe, and and that's what you did. You did Formula Three, Formula Three Thousand, and then unless you were Jensen and you just went straight from F3. Um, That's that's how you did it. But I didn't have the money to do it. So I I drove the car of almost certain death, as we nicknamed it, in in F3 once and rolled it at Rockingham. Um, And kind of thought, okay, how am I going to do this? Because I don't have the sponsorship and I've been knocking on doors and sending off sponsorship proposals until I was blue in the face. And um, I thought, okay, well, People like Dan Weldon have made it in the States. So maybe I'll I'll try and do it out there. Maybe there's more opportunities for women out there. You know, there was um, Vincent James, Sarah Fisher. I thought, okay, we'll, we'll try that. And actually, that is how I have a career. Um, you probably all read in the, in the press lately that Kevin Kalkoven recently died. Um, but he was the, the person who gave me my, my start in racing. He... Um, I <laughs> I was working at Silverstone, just like instructing and um, sending off sponsorship proposals and whatnot and seeing if there were any opportunities. And there was actually in the States, um, Catherine Nunn was doing a test for women um, at Phoenix. And um, whoever won that was going to get an indie light season. So Lynn St. James um, was the one picking the girls to go to this shootout. And so I emailed her and I called her and I wasn't chosen. And I was a bit miffed about not being chosen. I was like, why wouldn't they choose me? I'm awesome. <laughs> What's wrong with these people? <laughs> and um, so I turned up helmet in hand anyway. And uh, I said, hey, just put me in the car at lunchtime when everybody else is doing their press conferencing. Um, and if I'm rubbish, I'll get back on a plane to England and you'll never hear from me again. So, um, wow. And my dad, luckily my dad has been there every step of the way. He still comes to all the races that he can. Um, obviously COVID allowing at the moment. And, um, so he gave me the, the airfare to fly out to Phoenix when I turned up and I drove the car and they stopped their press conference. And they got rid of all of the girls. Oh, my God. Bar, I know, bar me and this other girl called Sarah McCune. And I remember her. And I have no idea what happened to her. And I must look it up, actually. And um, and then, so I won this scholarship to do any lights, right? So I thought I made it. And this was going to start my career. And um, the the sponsorship fell through. So I was oh. back to square one. Oh. And I was gutted. Oh. And so I know this has been this this has been the up and down. It's been a roller coaster, let me tell you. Um so it's been like one good thing and then one bad thing, and it's it's been crazy my the entirety of my career. But um then my dad said, Okay, whatever money you can put together on match and you can do this championship called the Can Am Championship um in the States. And maybe you'll meet people over there that will help you on your way. Wow. So I saved saved up fifteen thousand pounds, and my dad gave me fifteen thousand pounds, <laughs> and I did this three race Canadian American Formula Renault Championship that I finished third in, and uh, I 
one of the races was supposed to be in Vancouver, but it got moved and it was in Tuarivia. But my my dad had already got a plane ticket to Vancouver and they were still doing the champ car race there. So he went anyway. I didn't. Um, and he met Vicky O'Connor, who at the time uh, ran the Atlantic Series. And she said, you know, we'd love to have Catherine in the Atlantic Series. These are the people you need to talk to. This is what's going on. And um, Kevin Kalkoven owns the uh, owns Champ Car Atlantics, everything. Right? Like, and he's going to be in England, actually. He's buying Cosworth. Um, so my dad called me and he said, Kevin Kalkoven's coming to England. I was like, okay, cool. So uh, this was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I printed out my my little racing CV, as you said, back then with all the shiny pictures. And uh, I got in my Vauxhall Nova. <laughs> Nothing wrong with a Vauxhall Nova. Uh, <laughs> Nothing wrong with a Nova. Uh, I hope you had six by nine speakers on the back shelf. <laughs> I didn't. I couldn't afford them. <laughs> Otherwise, I probably would have. But anyway, that's beside the point. So then I drove to Cosworth. And I sat in, um, I, I sat in the uh, waiting area there, and I told the receptionist lady, I said, "I want to speak to Kevin Kalkova, please. I just want five minutes of his time." She looked at me like I was from another planet. Like, yeah. um, sorry, no, you're not going to see Kevin Kalkova. He's this multi-billionaire, like big dog, and who are you? And um, I said, okay, can I just wait here and maybe as he comes out, I'll corner him and just have 30 seconds of his time. And she was like, no, not really. But I guess they didn't have security at Cosmo for the first time. <laughs> she couldn't stop so, you. <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't stop me. And I was sitting there, literally, my hands were shaking and I was sweating and it was awful. But um, his daughter and his fiance at the time, who he obviously married, um, came out because they heard about this crazy English girl sitting in reception and uh, I spoke to them for all of about five or ten minutes and gave them my CV and they went back and said hey Kevin there's something about her like for her to be able to do this um, you should probably talk to her so Kevin came out and he spent literally 30 seconds looking me up and down thinking I was a complete weirdo <laughs> and um I went away. I, I called my dad uh, as I was leaving. Obviously, back then, <laughs> you could call people on mobile phones and it wasn't illegal. And uh, I think I cried and I said, oh, he hates me. There's no way this is ever in. I probably should just go and get a proper job and be done with it. This is, this is never going to happen. And uh, literally two days later, I got a phone call from Jim and Pam Griffith, who were also instrumental in my career. They owned Polestar and Atlantic Team. And they said, Kevin Kalkoven wants us to test you. And I was like, wait, what? No way. He's like, no, this is this can't be happening, but this is awesome. They said, can you be in Phoenix on Tuesday? And uh, so I called my dad. <laughs> can I have some more money, please? <laughs> I have to go to Phoenix. And uh, flew out to Phoenix and tested with them. They gave me a glowing report to Kevin. And so Kevin says, okay, you've got the first three races in Atlantic. So um, I, I moved in with Jim and Pam. You know, I live with them. They taught me everything I know about anything, really, racing-wise, especially over here. You know, we would be up until 10, 11 o'clock at night just talking about what the third spring does. And, you know, I learned a bunch about car setup from Jim, and they were just awesome, awesome people. 
And the uh, first race was Long Beach. And I went out and I crashed in qualifying because it was my first ever street race. First ever time I'd ever driven anything with that much power. You know, I'd done Formula 3 and, and Formula Renault, but that was about it. And uh, so, you know, didn't hold out much hope. But in the race, I went from P9 because I crashed in qualifying and got my fastest lap taken away. And, and I won. So... <laughs> Um, everybody was kind of like, oh, wow, who is this English girl? And uh, and I went to win three races that year and finished third in the championship. And so that's when Kevin then gave me the opportunity to to test for my ride in, in Champ Car. And I tested the, the Minardi for Paul Stoddard. And that kind of really was a springboard for the, for the rest of my career. And then two years later, Champ Car folded um, when it merged with IndyCar and, and they said, well, we've got Danica. We don't really need another token female. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh my God. I was, I was going to say, yeah. what, what, you know, at this point, you know, you're entering a, a different country, uh, not only as a, a minority, as a female, um, but it, it's, it's alien to you. You're probably alien to a lot of them. How were you received in things like um, Champ Car and, and, you know, Formula Atlantic, were, were people open arms or was there a bit of like, who does yeah. she think she is? No, 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 no. It was totally open. And that's what I love about the States, especially back then. You know, it was very much an old boys club in England and in Europe. Yeah. And um, when I went to DTM as well, straight from Atlantic, uh, straight from Champ Car, I felt the contrast and it was huge. Um, over here, it was... I guess now it's the same, though. I would say worldwide now, from my experience doing work and everything else, it's pretty much the same as it is here. Maybe not quite as open, but definitely they were the first ones because they'd already seen it. You know, they did have Danica. They had yeah. Sarah Fisher. Um, so I felt very much welcomed and, and at home. And that's the reason, actually, I came back to do IndyCar after I did DTM is because... I wanted to feel like I had an equal opportunity. You know, I wanted to feel like I wasn't going to be just put in the worst car and, and be the token that I actually had a legit shot. I don't know how you didn't fly off the handle when someone says, oh, we've already got a token female driver. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Go back to, oh, that's, that's awful. So you, you then did go, you went to Europe, you went to DTM. For, that was yeah. 2008 to 2010. So that you didn't feel like you were as welcome there. How was that experience as a whole? Because did that cross over with Susie Wolf as well in DTM? Yeah, it did, yeah. So I was in the Audi and Susie was in the uh, Mercedes. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it, it was brutal, honestly. Like, I was not a happy bunny. Um, I was definitely the, the, token, the token female at that point. Um, and I think I was too young and I didn't have enough strength of character at that time. I would say I probably would be fine now, but um, at that time it, it kind of broke me, to be honest. And that's why I kind of went running back to the States with my tail between my legs to do IndyCar because I felt like it was a lot kinder environment and... Um, I, I probably needed some guidance. I probably needed someone to take me under my wing and say, this is how it is. This is how, you know, it's going to be. And this is how you need to, to do to get around it. But I didn't. I was very isolated and lonely and, and all those things. And I 
I was fighting. So my whole career has been about fighting to get the opportunities, fighting to stay in those opportunities, fighting to be good enough, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it wears you down after a while. Yeah, yeah. And um, at the time, I I was fighting and I was fighting and I was in a two-year-old car and I wanted to be in a one-year-old car and then I wanted to make my way up. And it was it was crazy because, you know, I'd, I'd show glimmers of being good enough, but then you're told, you know, back then you kind of everybody had a role to play and don't get me wrong you were paid well for doing it and everybody was honest from the outset but it was it was just rough for me it was a bit rough um did you um did you voice any of your concerns during the DTM period and because there's you know you've battled through all of that you've probably come out stronger for it but there are different types of personalities that deal with things in different ways and obviously you would have dealt with it a certain way. There's dri- I used to manage drivers, and there's one guy I worked with who raced in a, a very well-known um, endurance series, and he was put in a the second car. There was a, a group of very experienced people in the first car who'd been at the team forever. He was put in as a new guy um, into the second car, which was supposed to be identical to the, the the lead car, but it wasn't. They had older parts. It was an older mm-hmm. car. They'd often get different, you know, older tires and stuff. And and his way yeah. of dealing with it was actually just sulk or um, <laughs> create a fuss uh, but not in the way that would make his team want to help him how did you and and consequently his career has has probably taken a very different path to yours how did you remain positive and how did you deal with that situation at the time um with great difficulty and I wasn't honestly I wasn't that good at it because I did sulk at sometimes and I got a bit fat <laughs> I ate my feelings um <laughs> I oh, <she> <laughs> I am no I it was up and down right because sometimes you get a grip of yourself and you're like okay I can do this and I tried reasoning and I I tried all the different ways of dealing with it but you know what there was I wasn't going to show weakness and I have never I've never spoken about this before so you guys have got got it first time um so yeah I wasn't I wasn't going to show weakness and now I'm getting to the end of my career I would say you know I'm not just some new person starting out that needs to be quiet about everything um I just kind of sucked it up and got on with it and I had the end goal in mind of coming back here and and doing what I'm doing and I honestly kept thinking that it would change and kept thinking that I could change it and kept thinking that it would get better um and then it didn't so I ran away <laughs> Escape. how how do you see it now then looking back at well looking at the current landscape obviously things have changed but there still you know aren't that it's not a 50 50 split but we have now obviously got the W series, which is supporting, actively supporting, encouraging young girls into racing and trying to get them on on the road to Formula One or sports cars or wherever that may be. You've also got things like Extreme, obviously, which has a 50-50 agenda um, sp- split with drivers. Uh, and, you know, arguably this is sort of European-based, isn't it? So you, there's changes there going on. There's, I think, in the new look DTM, I think Esme Hawkey is racing in that as well. So there's a female mm-hmm. racing driver there. How do you look back on it now, are you happy to see how, how far it's come, but there still seems to be quite a long way to go? Uh, no, I'm, I think it's come a long, long way. And it seems to be like a snowball, you know, it seems to be accelerating down the hill. Um, I, 
kind of a little bit jealous you know I wish I wish I was kind of 16 now because you've got you know that um, Ferrari FIA um academy going on and things like that as well and uh so I think there's a bunch of opportunities for for girls and women in racing now and I think it's not it wasn't going to happen overnight you aren't going to go from no girls to a ton of girls um but I think that it's in the last decade it's exponentially increased and and I think we will see more girls in racing I think it's a numbers game right and so you've got just as many girls and boys racing go-karts against each other the chances are if you've got a hundred thousand boys racing go-karts the chances of 10 of them being really good is quite high if you've only got 100 girls racing go-karts then maybe you'll get one if you're lucky that's really good you know so I think it's a numbers game I think uh, we will see it. I, I still struggle a little bit with uh, a lot of how some of these things are perceived because it is still a little bit gimmicky. And even though a lot of these things give girls the opportunity, it's still a little bit tongue in cheek, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, it's not genuinely equal. It's it's either done for PR or marketing purposes. Or it's done with, oh, let's give these poor little women a chance, <laughs> you know. So um, I, I think it will come there. It's yeah. like I said, it's not going to happen overnight. And it's thanks to um, a few really key people, you know, like Michelle Mouton, who did it with the FIA and the, and the Women in Motorsport Commission and, and her right-hand woman, Kathy Miller. You know, those strong women. And they don't seem to build them like that anymore. You know, yeah. you've got the Michelle Mouton's of the world, you've got the Vincent James of the world. I mean, talk about gumption. Those women had balls, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I think that also you look at like Susie's and, and me and Simona's. Um, yeah, I was going to say, Catherine, um, I think you're doing yourself a, a bit of a disservice there. It is people, it is people like you and, and Susie and Simona de Silvestre, all those people who... I'm not going to say, you know, silent warriors, but I suppose it's taken, you, you've been sort of the active participants in the last five, eight years. And it, and you've been there to sort of instigate that snowball effect where people have gone, well, hang on, why is it only them? And and why are they not getting the same opportunities? Because with, without people like you, arguably, this might have taken even longer to come in place. Yeah, I think so. But I, I think that that's the way of the world as well. And I think that there will be a new wave. I hope so. I just really hope that they have the uh, the gumption as well, you know. Um, and I don't know if there's anybody kind of in that mid-range coming up that I think will make it to F1 yet. And so I hope it happens in my lifetime. I really do. And I've tried um, to do my part, and I will continue trying to do my part to enable it and, and help it to happen over here. You know, we recently did a, a test. We tested... Um, a bunch of young girls in a GT4 car, GT3 car, cup car, and, um, you know, with the hope of making some kind of ladder series to, to success in sports car racing, because I do also think that there's a lot more jobs in sports car racing, right? When you look at IMSA, WEC, and EMS and everything, you're it's not just you in the car. You're there with a teammate or two or three. Yeah. And so I think that there are a lot more opportunities for for um, for everybody, but especially girls in, in sports car racing. Yeah. And um, 
I, I agree. And it's I, your choice of words there is interesting. Like someone with gumption. I think that's a really nice way of putting it. Because you sort of, at the moment, there's a lot of good female racing drivers around. Um, I, I don't know that there's that many who have got that sort of killer, killer um, sort of attitude in them that is going to make people really stand up and take notice. I mean, you've got obviously really polished people. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Like Jamie, who who are doing brilliant things on and off track to increase yeah. awareness of female motorsport. But is, is there a person who's really going to grab the ball by the horns and, and really make impact? Um, I, I'm not sure, but like you say, hopefully we'll see someone breaking through soon and it can only be a good thing that there's more bums on seats in the first place. A quick interruption to the show to remind you to check out our sponsor, F1 Experiences. F1 Experiences offer a wide range of packages that come direct from Formula One, giving you a unique experience of the pinnacle of motorsport. Official ticket packages come with the very best race tickets, first class hotels and transfers and unprecedented access, including track tours, pit lane walks, VIP hospitality, and loads more. It really is the closest you can get to Formula One. And thanks to F1 Experiences, you can return to the track this year. And Motormouth listeners can save 5% on your next F1 Experience package by using the code MOTORMOUTH when booking online at f1experiences.com. Let's bring it back to you. So you, you've, you've done your DTM stint. You've gone um, back to the States, um, IndyCar, Dragon Racing, um, I'm a massive fan of IndyCar. I love it. You, it wasn't long before you drove in your uh, first Indy 500, one of the biggest races in the world. Huge, huge crowds. Take us through the emotions <coughs> of um, experiencing not only the race itself, but that whole month of May, the big build-up, and then and then being on track with people you probably idolise and one of the greatest races on the planet. Oh, my goodness. It's honestly like... I don't think I let myself enjoy the first Indy 500 as much as I should have because I I was so focused and I kind of put blinkers on myself because it's it's too much. <laughs> like it's the sensory overload um, when you go out for your rookie orientation laps and uh, you know you're driving around Indy and you've got the spotters in your ear and you can't think, oh my goodness, how awesome is this? 
Um, or are you, you know, you're not when you're doing 240 miles an hour. So you kind of just got to keep your head down. <laughs> so and, fast. And, uh, yeah, do what you can. Uh, the first 500 was also fraught with drama and, um, oh, it was just, it was awful. So, you know, I said it ups and downs in my career. Well, the first year of IndyCar was definitely, <laughs> definitely both. Um, so I found a sponsor, True Car. Um, who were also trying to support women in racing. They supported some girls in, in lower formula too. And uh, I I went to drive on racing. You know, I thought Jay Penske, Roger Penske's son, this is gonna be this is gonna be an awesome team. We're gonna be great. Um and they went with uh, Lotus. <laughs> now, nothing against Lotus. I love Lotus cars, but um when they did IndyCar engines, they were pretty abysmal. And um, we didn't even qualify for for Indy with the Lotus. So we had to switch and put Chevy engine in really quickly. So there was all that drama surrounding it. We didn't do any of the testing on the run-up to it. So we literally went out um, on bump day and put the car in the field. And then, you know, we had no setup or anything like that. So the first Indy 500 was just about, are we going to make it on the grid? Are we not? And then, um, you know, the, the team basically stole my sponsor and it was another big, big drama. And it was another really bad, really bad time for me. Um, so I split my time in the car with Sebastian Bourdais and um, then was really fortunate and one of the ups to be offered the, the Indy 500 seat with Sam Schmidt the following year. <clears throat> and talk about going from like the worst car to the best car. It was I, the first time I drove it, I was like, wow, this is easy. Like you have no idea, actually, for those of you sat at home, the guys in the back driving the bad cars are working so much harder than the guys in the front. Like when you drive a good car, it's a lot easier to, it's a lot quicker day as well. Like, it's a long day when you're driving a bad car. So I, uh, I got the opportunity to drive for Sam. We were like P6, I guess, on, uh, on carb day. And it was, like I said, it was just, it was a breeze. The team were awesome. It was just really, really cool. I, unfortunately, I brushed the wall um, and caused the end of my, my own race, that one. But um, that was the experience that I will remember as the Indy 500 of... You know, I had a legit chance at being in the top 10 and, and it was a really, really, really cool experience and one that I will thank Sam for, for forever. And that's why I think I want to do it again. Yes. <laughs> I probably think I'm crazy. But do it again. Is it, is, it, is it the most... So I spoke to Max Chilton um, about his Indy 500 experience experiences and he loved it, but he was also terrified in equal measure. He was like, it is <laughs> yes. super, super scary, especially when you're sort of mid-pack being drafted along and, you know, there's G-forces in action and you're moving all over the place. You know, it might look all calm from the outside, but inside the cockpit is crazy. Is it literally terrifying? No. Oh, my God, it must um, be. I don't know. I love it. So there are some drivers who uh, don't, really take to oval racing I always did the first oval race I did was Milwaukee in a champ car in 2006 never been on an oval before um I never raced an oval before I should say and 
Jimmy Vassa was my team owner at that time. And I said, okay, Jimmy, what, what do I do? You know, how, how do I turn in? Where do I lift? What, you know, is there a technique? What is, what's the deal here? And do you know what his advice to me was? Stab and steer, baby. Stab and steer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, great. I'll be learning this by myself then. <laughs> so um, it was, I think I led that race, actually, the Milwaukee race. Well, it was and, right. Stab um, and steer. See, it worked. Stab and steer. Exactly. Stab Good it. advice. Thanks, Jimmy. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> um, but then at Indy as well, I just took to it. I loved it. I loved the... It's a different form of racing. Um, it's all the things you have to be kind of smart. You have to be a thinking driver, I think, to be really good at ovals. You know, which is why the likes of Scott Dixon, etc., is so good at it because you have to take into consideration using your tools in the car to uh, to combat the the tire degradation, and you have to think about heating your brakes up before you pit. You have to. There's like the drafting, the timing of the overtaking the um it, just everything about it is is like strategy and i love that side of it so it's not you know can i outbreak somebody or um rolling speed or anything like that it's really about planning and strategy and thinking and and whether you have a good car or not because yeah. all of the drivers at that level okay maybe not all 99% of the drivers at that level are really good drivers right so they're going to be fast in whatever car they're given and it's just, you know, who is the smartest, whose team give them the best advice, et cetera, et cetera, to, to make it to the front and to be it there at the end. It's not necessarily about who has the biggest balls or anything like that. So um, I, I love it and I always will. And I wish that I had been an era before, you know, when IndyCar racing was just on the ovals. I think I would have, I would have loved that a lot. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Scott Dixon there. I'm going to ask you a question that we asked uh, Connor Daly when he was on the podcast um, last year. I think it was last year. And uh, we were talking about the, you know, the, the attributes of certain drivers in IndyCar. And there are some brilliant drivers like Scott Dixon, who's just a ridiculously good driver. If, if you could pick up someone like Scott Dixon and plonk him in, for example, Lewis Hamilton's Mercedes or, or Max Verstappen's Red Bull, do, do you think with a bit of getting up to speed, he'd be on pace? Now, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, 10 years ago, I think he would have been all over it. Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, I, and I'm not saying now that he wouldn't. I think he probably would, but I don't know whether he would want it as much now as, as back then, you know. Yeah. Um, he's just, if, if I could be any driver when I grow up, I would want to be Scott Dixon. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's I think he's awesome. Um, I think he has everything. I think um, another driver like that was Justin Wilson. Yep. Um, and so, yes, I think he could be every bit as fast as them. But I, I mean, he's been doing it for so long now. Maybe that's my. Maybe I'm, you know, putting the evil on him. I don't know. No, I think he would be awesome. I think he would be every bit as awesome as as, as they are. Honestly, we'll especially if he was at the same age as him. Yeah. <laughs> exactly it's uh it, it really is so much more i mean i don't know why this is always a surprise to me with every episode but there's so much more to any to racing and especially you know to, to indycar and american racing that meets the eye you stayed in um the u.s after uh, the season indycar in 2013 doing uh alms and that famous delta wing uh car 
that look, <laughs> looks amazing. How how was that? Did you nearly say ridiculous? No, uh, no. <laughs> well, it, it looks ridiculously amazing. Well, I mean, I, you know what I did? It was just so, I, it was ridiculous, but it was it was a good ridiculous, <laughs> yeah. I think. But you know, a very different car to to, um, to I imagine to what you you've driven previous. Yeah, totally different. Well, yes and no. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think people either do love it or hate it, right? And they either think it's amazing or it's ridiculous. And uh, I think some people are probably a mix of a mix of the both. But it did teach me a lot. So it drove like an Indy car. It got all of its downfalls from the ground effects underneath the car. And actually, the steering was super heavy. You wouldn't think it by those two skinny front tires, but it it wasn't exactly like an IndyCar, but it was designed to be an IndyCar back in the day. So it almost, it felt more akin to driving an open wheel car than it did a sports car. And it was pretty horrific at the beginning. I'm not going to lie. It handled really badly. We couldn't get the thing to stay together. It was abysmal. Um, However, (laughs) I learned more about engineering and, um, car dynamics and and I learned so much by developing that car um that I think it served me really well in the longevity of my career because by doing that I then got the development role for the Acura with the GT3 over here and so I think I just learned a lot about car setup and what we were looking for and you know towards the end it was really good and in the third year we led Daytona um like legit led Daytona and um yeah we got the we got the thing flying and um one of my favorite things about the whole Delta Wing project though was working with Dr. Panos you know he was a legend and one of the people that I look up to most in in my career and just the stories and what he did for the sport you know for me he was another Kevin Kalkoven in that he gave me a, a chance and despite other people's naysaying, he was like, nope, she's the driver and you're going to make it work. And, you know, we did in the end. And so that was really cool. And like I said, it got me the opportunity then to to go on and, and drive for, for Acura. So it was good. Yeah, you've had some, I mean, truly amazing experiences, haven't you? Now, in we're running a little bit out of time. So I just want to fast forward a few things. But one thing I've always wanted to ask you about, Catherine, is Formula E and that first season uh, with the <laughs> Amlin Aguri team. I've just always, you know, it was brand new to everybody, wasn't it? How, I just want to know what it was like. How was it? How did you come across it? What did you make of it? That first test in those cars, which seems so alien to, to what Formula E looks like now. Can you sort of sum up the experience? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I wanted to be a part of it because I thought, okay, this is new and exciting and it's the future. And uh, so I went to the very first test that they had at Donington and I met the the guys and I was very fortunate to get the first couple of races in the Amlin Aguri um, car. I had signed a deal to race in the States so I could only do a couple of races in it. And it was probably one of the biggest mistakes I've made in my career is that a, I didn't really take to it with all the region and the paddles and everything. I, it wasn't that easy for me to to take to it as it was some of the other people and the other drivers. But also, 
I thought, oh, well, it doesn't really matter because I'm only doing a couple of races and it's not going to be around after this year because, you know, it's, it's probably gone away. And then <laughs> it went from strength to strength and I was kicking myself because I was like, I could have done that, you know, like just got your head around it and you could have been doing it. But um, obviously I made I made that mistake and it is here to stay and it is an awesome championship now. Um, so, um my bad. <laughs> well, you, you, you could always come back, couldn't you? And, and yeah, if the opportunity was there, would you, would you jump at it? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, the cars are so much faster now and they're so much more advanced. And um, I actually tested the, um, where were we? Saudi. I think it was Saudi Arabia, right? Where I tested for Mahindra. Yes. Um, we, again, didn't, we had a few issues and didn't really get a, a good run at it. But, um, the cars are so much more advanced now, so much faster. You know, back when I drove them, I think the top speed was 80 miles an hour. Wow. <laughs> so I was not that enamored with it, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> but but now they're awesome. So um, I never thought they would be. I tell you what was so much fun, though. I went to um, to Wales and I drove Jensen's um, Extreme car. Yeah. Oh. Oh, my goodness. Okay, let me tell you. It's... I was shaking. I had the biggest grin on my face. It is the most fun you can have in a racing car. It was awesome. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. It was really cool. That's a so, so if Extreme E comes calling, you'd be all over that, I imagine. Yeah, the problem with Extreme E is that the dates that they seem to set are not set. So as a driver, you have to sign a deal to do a championship, right? So I signed up to do IMSA as, you know, that's, what I do now apparently and um, and so you can't then sign up to do extreme as well when you don't know what the, the race dates are because they change yeah. so I think it, it's tough as a driver to do both you know mm. and you're not going to give up your main bread and butter and IMSA and doing sports cars just to do extreme so um Yes, I would love to do the races that I can do, but I don't know any teams that are going to be like, sure, we'll just take you when you're available. That's fine. Well, <laughs> I mean, you've got, um, it was it Jamie Chadwick. She sort of hopped in and out of it a bit, didn't she? So maybe you could do a sort of guest driver yeah, appearance at some stage uh, <laughs> with Veloce. We'll put in a good word. Um, put in a good word. So <laughs> um, as Harry said, we are rapidly running out of time because we, we Again, these conversations go so quickly. We're already at 45 minutes nearly. Um, but um, let's fast forward again a little bit. Um, your your crash um, and recovery from Paul Rickard um, in ELMS testing has been very well documented and, and we're not going to drag you through that one again. I think it's been talked about enough in the press. But I would like to look forwards. And um, today, what is the date today? It's Monday the 10th of January. And as we record now, even though this is actually going live in a couple of weeks, we've had some rather exciting news. So um, there's been an announcement that's gone out literally as we hit record. Tell us what's coming up for you in 2022. So I am back with Porsche and IMSA um, with a Hardpoint racing team. Um, I drove with them last year. Uh, it, was, it was actually, um, again, it's a bit of a longer story than, hey, this is just what I'm doing. So we were supposed to do an all-female car because I was trying to get that off the ground last year. Um, and it turned out that both cars kind of went down into one car and I drove with Rob Ferrell, who is the, the team owner. And uh, <coughs> he has very graciously um, asked me if I would like to drive again this year 
And so Rob and I will be competing full season in IMSA in the GTD championship. As you know, GTLM's gone away. So it's like one massive GT3 class, which will be awesome. I really think it's going to be the future. And um, yeah, we, we start off at Daytona in a couple of weeks' time. So we're pumped about that. You know, it was a brand new team last year. So again, I went from developing the Delta Wing to developing the GT3 Acura. And now kind of trying to help a new car, a, a new team kind of come up and, and through an IMSA with the experience that I have over there now. It's almost 10 years in, in American sports car racing. Wow. So, yeah, it's a long time. It's going to be my 10th day owner this year. That's incredible. I mean, and you're, I agree with you completely. Like the, the way the, the new sort of regulations are coming out for IMSA and WEC as well makes sports car racing and prototype racing just so exciting going into the next few years. First race, of course, you will be the, well, the, I know they do the Raw, but then the 24 hours of Daytona. Question for you, though, in a 24 hour race, are you actually able to get any sleep at any point? <laughs> so, not really. <laughs> um, I have never really been able to because I am a complete control freak and um, I want to be listening to the radio and having an ear on what's going on and a say on what's going on at all times. So um, maybe get an hour here or there if I'm lucky. But over the years, over the, the nine years I've done Daytona, I think I've probably slept for a total of two hours, maybe. <laughs> that's my that's my um, my aim one day is to to be a part of a 24 hour race I just think that'd be so exciting and I agree how can you sleep when there's so much going on especially if you're racing the damn car you know you get out of the car you're going to want to know what happens to it in the next few hours while you're asleep so you're going to want to find that out <laughs> and you're sleeping like you're, well you're trying to sleep next to a radio so you're listening to what's going on in the car too and especially in American racing you've got the spotters <clears throat> so they're talking literally non-stop so there's just there's no way you can sleep and knowing my luck I'd go to sleep and then I'd be like why why are we out what oh the car? that must be the worst <laughs> waking up to a retirement oh no that's not gonna happen that's not gonna happen at all I, well, yeah I finished second in 2019 that's the worst you're like <sighs> so close to winning um but I have been lucky that I've had a few friends that have been in the top three and then with an hour to go or something, they go out. And that's got to be heartbreaking, you know. That, oh, yeah, I, I can only imagine that. Well, go on. You've raced so many cars uh, that we've covered. If you could just race one car again, which one would it be and why? Ooh, 2006 Champ Car, um, the old Lola, because oh. it was freaking brutal okay this thing beat you up the kickback on it i mean it was like talk about man's car it was you did six laps and you felt like you'd done a round with mike tyson it was <laughs> brutal but it was awesome i mean it was the epitome of like a real race car back in the day there was no aids on it there was no traction control it had turbos that kicked you up the butt it was it was just mega and i will forever be grateful that i got the opportunity to drive those things because they were they were cool great answer great answer um take you away from racing you've got any hidden talents what else are you good at <laughs> um i don't think i am am i i don't any musical yeah, instruments or no i'm terrible i can't no. draw i don't have any music no nothing like that <laughs> not very arty. i'm a lot <laughs> no i'm a lot better with numbers Okay. And straight lines and technical <laughs> stuff than I am than I am arty, but I am 
I don't know. I'm really good at cleaning. Wow. <laughs> I'm wow. like completely, yeah, I'm completely o- o- OCD about cleaning. I guess that's like literally the only other thing that I'm good at. I don't know. I like that. So what's the, well, I was going to say, what's the best way to get like a, a, a stain out of uh, of the carpet then? Uh, do you know what the answer is? <laughs> Depends what yes. you're it. Depends what the stain, stain is. remover in a carpet cleaner. <laughs> God, well, I, it, that, it, if it, only I thought of that. If it's if it's red wine, you put white wine on it, don't you? That, that, is that yeah, actually yeah. true? Is it, that actually true? It 100% that a... works. I did it on my in-laws yeah. uh, cream carpet, uh, poured white mm. wine over the red wine, and it was tickety-boo, absolutely fine. Are you one of those wow. people, Catherine, like me, who, so at the top of the dishwasher, we, we've got like a, a rack that you place all the knives and forks into, and I have to have the, the <laughs> spoons next to the spoons, then the knives, then the forks. Um, everything's yeah. in order. Are you one of those? Totally, yeah, yes. absolutely. Oh, nah. And um, <laughs> just shove it all in. I, do, I have a friend who also races, who shall not be named, um, who recently broke up with a girl over the way they stack a dishwasher. Don't blame him. I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> no. Yeah. Imagine that is what seals the deal. You don't put the big plates at the front yeah. that, and that's the end of the relationship. <laughs> Good God. You've got you to be seriously, seriously pissed off with your, with your partner to use that as like the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the spoons aren't incorrectly. We're done. Yeah. Well, the spoons weren't spooning. Yeah. The spoons yeah. Weren't spooning. It's amazing what lockdown and a pandemic can do, isn't it? Well, um, it really last is. couple of questions before we do our, our final three, Catherine, because we've got a few minutes left. Who is your best pal? Do you have a best pal in the paddock? Um, I have a few really good friends, I would say, and I'm very lucky um, that I do. I've got Andy Lally, who kind of mentored me up through sports car racing. I've obviously got <coughs> Rob, who is my teammate and a really good friend. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I've got AJ Holmendinger, who kind of took me under his wing when we were doing Champ Car and has been around ever since. Um, I've got a few. I'm, I'm lucky that I've made a few really close friendships that have kind of stuck. And I'm also lucky that they're the people who have also stuck around throughout my career. You know, we've kind of all been going up through the ranks together. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, okay, final question before we come on to our, our final three. Who's the best racing driver you've ever shared a track with? Oh, crikey. I've, again, been really lucky to share the track with some really awesome drivers. And I think there are... You know, there's different awesome drivers. You've got the Scott Dixons of the world who I put on a pedestal and then you've got um, the likes of Juan Pablo Montoya who was obviously really good about driving all kinds of different things throughout his career and probably doesn't get enough credit these days. And then you've got people like Anthony Davidson who I was racing against when I was doing go-karts at age nine who kind of made an awesome career. And so I don't know that there's been once I've raced against Lewis, you know, obviously he's yeah. epically awesome. Um, you raced against but... Lewis and you beat him to pole position. Let's just make sure we get that. <laughs> that, makes you one the, time, that makes you 20 the years ago. <laughs> <laughs> if only my hair career had kind of kept accelerating at the same rate he did. Maybe I should have just followed him around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's been so uh, brilliant sort of seeing how, how you've gone through your career. We, we now have got through finally to our uh, our final three questions, which we ask to all guests, uh, and they're brought to us uh, by our partners at F1 Experiences. 
and they're brought to us by our partners at Roading Cars. Uh, Tim, do you want to kick off with the first question? Sure thing. Catherine, what's got you excited at this very moment in time? The thought of not coughing anymore. Hey. I've oh, actually bless. managed to get through oh. this without coughing, so I'm winning. Well <laughs> You've soldiered on. You're a true soldier. Um, okay, <laughs> what is your favourite race destination and why? Ooh, so... Um, I want to do them all, desperately want to do them all. But the fa- favorite one I've done so far is Service Paradise. We did Champ Car out there because it was awesome and I've always wanted to go to Australia. And it's just completely different. And it was really cool. Very good. I really want to do Bathurst as well. Though. Yeah. Oh, that is an epic track, race. isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, final question for you What are you scared of? Oh, what am I scared of? That's a good question. Failure. <laughs> yeah. Think, yeah. We've had that before. It's, it's not yeah. it's a common one. It's uh, yeah, and a fair one, I would I want say. To be unique. <laughs> <laughs> well, or and you could be. What's the most say, unique one we've had? I think we, I t- always t- go to. T- we t- had t- Sebastian t- Buemi on once, and he said he was deathly afraid of sharks, which we've never had on before. Yeah, Cro- Crofty said tea bags, which. I oh, think tea bags. He, I think yeah. he was just putting our leg. How can I, you be scared of tea bags? You can't be scared of it's, tea bags. It, it's apparently, it's like the tiny. You've got this fear, isn't you? It's the tiny holes yeah. that make up a. a, t- it's, a it's like trichophobia or something. It's That's like fear of tiny holes. Which, is Which Tim also has has a phobia of. Okay, that was the most unique one. Can you beat that? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do. I think failure, but I also think I'm scared of myself, right? Because I know that I can be the one who makes or breaks me as, in my opinion, as success. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I totally, totally agree with that one. I'll tell you one thing that that reminds me of something that I'm my sort of New Year's resolution for this year. Um, talking about you know yourself being the 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 thing that is success or not is taking more action and uh, mm-hmm. actually just getting up and going and doing things and taking action and I'm trying my best to um, this year take action in whatever I do whether it's sending an email that I've been sitting on for ages that I don't want to take action on for whatever reason or asking myself difficult questions about um, you know what I don't like about myself or what I'm not doing at work or whatever it might be. And taking action and it's such an effective thing that actually it just gets stuff done and you move forward at such a pace when you just take action on the things you've been delaying on or things you don't want to address there's my little bit of uh, philosophy for the for the set for the afternoon Ooh, very powerful That's smart. i might i might action that action very smart action <laughs> we'll all we'll all action that we'll yeah. go, go away from this podcast and action that uh, you. once you're feeling a bit better though catherine but um Thanks. i think that just about does it but catherine leg thank you so much for for taking us through your career so far it's been so interesting the ups and downs and the roller coaster ride that it's been and we can't wait to see how you get on uh in the imsa uh, season this year and of course uh, the 24 hours of detona which is just uh, a couple of weeks away by the time this goes out so best of luck for that uh, but catherine leg thank you so much for coming on to the motor mouth podcast thanks for having me chat Before you go, one final reminder to check out F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality and travel programme of Formula One. F1 Experiences is the closest you can get to the sport. Official ticket packages, which include the best race tickets, first-class hotels, travel and exclusive behind-the-scenes access across a Grand Prix weekend. F1 Experiences offer packages like no other. So to book your F1 Experiences package, head online to f1experiences.com and if you enter code MOTORMOUTH, you'll get five 
that percent off too. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too. So make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker don't forget to like subscribe and review and until next time you've been listening to the motormouth podcast planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.